morning. Today I'll be reading from Matthew 3, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And the voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Thank you, Jeff. And if you have your Bible and you want to turn there to Matthew 3, um, we're going to end up there. We're going to get there by way of Isaiah 42, which was our Old Testament reading for this morning. And so I want to read just a few verses from there. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. And he will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his teaching. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we live in a world of ironies. Over the past week, we've witnessed more public displays of prayer from people and in places we've been led to believe doesn't happen. We've also watched with a sort of can't-look-away disbelief that anyone would still want a job for which he has been turned down 14 times. So when we hear the words of Isaiah that your servant won't look for the spotlight, we find it an ironic position in relation to a world that rewards content creators who claim thousands of followers. Remind us of the good news. Your servant is faithful for bruised reeds and dim wicks, which we all are. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, for you are the faithful one for us all, and all God's people say. Have you ever felt like you're past your best by date? Or, or, or maybe you remember when you felt useful but now you wonder what use you might be? Our girls are at that age where they wonder what their parents are thinking. Actually, I think they've been feeling that way for quite a long time. And many of you know that Jason and Tommy and Max and Fox lived with us for almost a year. And during that time, we shared a refrigerator and a freezer. Now, you need to know that Patty and I had gotten quite accustomed to space for two people, so the food we needed fit nicely and had plenty of room. But when you're going to add food to feed six, 
Well, it required uh, us making sure that the space in those areas were optimized. So early on, that meant that Tommy checked to make sure that what was in the refrigerator was within the use-by dates. Let's just say she found some items that were past their best-by dates and were far from useful. To this day, it's a running joke when they come to the house. They love to enjoy reminding us, is that good, Dad? What's the date on that, Mom? Isaiah relays the, the word from the Lord. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. Bruised reeds and dim wicks. Now, before you think that Isaiah is casting insults, before you think that he's decided that Israel is in such a bad state of affairs that he's gone to name-calling, the prophet here is the Isaiah of the exile, and he's wanting to offer emotional support to a group of people who likely have come to believe that their best days are behind them. Their best by date has expired. They're likely feeling that because they have been in captivity for any period of time, that they're actually no longer useful to God. That's exactly what a bruised reed or a dim wit refers to. Refers to someone who's past their best by date or someone who no longer feels useful. And here the prophet is wanting to upbraid, uphold, encourage those exiles that God has not forgotten them, that God has not abandoned them, that God has not neglected them, even if, even if their own decisions left them in a position where they feel as though they're no longer the best of anything and no longer any good for anything else. They they had found themselves in captivity. Why? Well, we could kind of try to keep the theme alive by saying that what they had done was they had looked out into their social setting and they had discovered for themselves they knew who the bruised reeds were and they knew who the dim wicks were. In other words, they knew the drag on their society as they viewed it. And if they could just push them to the edges, discard them, ignore them, not deal with them, then they could sail right along and fulfill all of their own personal dreams and desires. They actually were doing what we all do. We are told more often than not that if we are in relationships, I actually saw this a few times uh, stated this week, that if you find yourself in a relationship that is like a dragging a weight along, you need to cut it loose. Bruised reeds, they're no longer best for you. Dimwicks, they're no longer useful to you. Cut them loose. They're a drain. They're taxing. They're more than you should have to bear. They're just too much for you. 
We're not altogether different from those who would have heard Isaiah's words in captivity. We live in a culture that celebrates the able, the more than able, actually. They are the ones who get all the attention, the camera lens, the microphones, And they leave us thinking always and forever that there's no possible way that we'll ever measure up. And most of us, most of us here, find ourselves somewhere in the middle, right? I mean, if we're kind of assessing the social strata that's at work in our world, we we are in the middle. We're not going to get the camera lens and we're not going to get the microphone. But thank God we're not the ones kicked to the edge or the curb. You know what happens in any kind of strata or hierarchy? There's always a packing order, and no matter where you are on the rung, there's always somebody you're willing to push aside. That's just us. We see bruised reeds and dim wicks as barnacles to our progress, slowing us down in a world that's moving full speed ahead. We celebrate people in their prime. I mean, most National Basketball Association professional players, uh, by the time they reach their late 30s with a full generation ahead of them, are considered, well, just nearly beyond any contribution they could make to their team. If it weren't for one quarterback in the NFL, everybody would have figured that you're done at the end of your mid-30s anyway. Tom Brady, by the way, although he's proving that he's aged now. You're keeping track of that. I I don't, but I I do see it from time to time. But there's, there's something that goes on in the narrative of Scripture that gets us to where we are in the baptism of Jesus. There's something that's happening. There's, there's a way the story that's getting told, and it's one that should be ironic to us. It should startle us. That if we were kind of aghast and our mouths agape that people on ESPN were stopping to pray for Mr. Hamlin, if we couldn't believe that sportscasters and newscasters and people who get the video cameras and get the microphones were stopping literally to pray, if that just startled us because we've been told that we just can't do that, it's a little bit ironic to look back and see that when God began His work to reveal Himself in the world, He selected a couple of bruised reeds and dim wicks. Abraham and Sarah, when they heard the promise of the Lord that through you all the world would be blessed, they were no spring chickens. And by the time they heard the promise that by this time next year you'll have a child, they had already waited 10 years. So much so that by the time you get the New Testament writers reflecting on their condition, their physical condition, they were considered as good as dead. How's that for ageism in the Bible? Of all the people that God had chosen, you would have expected He would have chosen people in their prime full of skill and ability, agility and all manner of possibility. And yet he chose Abraham and Sarah. Not specimens of superiority, 
really in any way, shape, or form. In fact, in fact, believing that God had given him a promise, Abraham still couldn't believe that God would take care of him, so he had to lie about his wife twice. How's that for moral turpitude? So not only was he physically inadequate, he just he didn't always trust explicitly. Bruised reeds and dim wicks. The irony is, is that by the time we get to our passage in Matthew, the one that Jeff read, there's a run-up to what, what he read. And, and, and what's happening is, is, is John is, is out in the wilderness and, and people are coming to him to be baptized. His message is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. Uh, repent for the, and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And everyone's coming out in the that included the exclusivists and the religious powerful. And looking up, looking up, John sees them. All the people that had been kicked to the curb, all the people in Mar- all those who had been pushed to the edge were the ones who were looking for hope. If you already had what you need, what hope did you have? You trusted in yourself. You had everything you needed. The people that were coming to John were the people that didn't. And out of curiosity, here they come. Where are all the people going? Why spending time out by the Jordan? Why not in the temple? John looks up and he sees those and he calls them a a brood of vipers and he says this do not presume to say to yourselves we have Abraham as our ancestor for I tell you God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham Jesus Jesus reminds those that were relying on their rule keeping and their exclusive positions that what really matters is that God kept God's promise and gave life to a couple who according to their physical situation was as good as useless. I mean, follow follow that story on and we learn that God is the one keeping God's promise even and despite Abraham's level of trust. He knew the future, but he was still unsure about it. Bruised reeds and dim wicks. And that takes us into exile. I mean, yes, it, it, it clicks through our DVR past a millennium or so to get from Abraham to the Israel in Babylon. But in those intervening years, if we wanted to interrogate what was going on, all we would have to do is look at David. In those years, David, the one who became the celebrated figure in all of Israel's history. I mean, it's not that David was not... It's not that David had some sort of physical difficulties. I mean, after all, the text tells us he was pretty good with his hands fighting off sheep predators. But his dad forgot about him. Jesse is told by Samuel to bring your sons. So he brought all of his sons. Except David. And all of his other sons were handsome and stocky and and, and well-featured. And they surely could be the one who was going to be the Lord's anointed. But the prophet 
priest says, are there any more? Haven't you forgot someone? So the forgotten shepherd, forgotten by his own dad, gets brought before Samuel, and he becomes the one, the one who everyone put their confidence in that he's going to make Israel more than it ever could possibly be. But you know what? What we find out about David? He had a great start, but he flamed out horribly. That same young slingshot artist who took down the Philistine giant is the same one who couldn't keep his eyes to himself, couldn't keep his hands to himself, and couldn't keep his family intact without great division. The end of David's life was pretty miserable. It just reminds us that it doesn't matter where you are on the strata. You could be a bruised reader at Dimwick. You could be on top of the world and be past your best by date. You could be at the pinnacle of your usefulness and be useless. Israel had to learn that if you don't take care of the ones you're Pushing to the curb, get ready because the ones you elevate up top, they may be the ones who really, really let you down. Because after all, the message from Isaiah is that the world is full of bruised reeds and dim wicks. People past their best by dates, no longer considered useful by anyone around them. Israel. Israel had the role, they had the role to follow their leaders, and the role they were to play in the world was to amplify what an individual was promised. So Abraham was promised to be the one through whom the world would be blessed. He was to be the father of a great nation who would bear witness to a God who keeps his promise, and yet what they did was follow their leaders. They were as unfaithful as David, unhelpful you fill in the description this once victorious king and those who followed him gave all the people a very poor example to follow and they did just that mired in a northern kingdom and southern kingdom always subject to the superpowers around them they were never ever what they once were where at one point they uh, read their own press clippings and believed they were the best uh, God's gift to the world, they find themselves upstaged by Babylon in captivity. What had they done? Well, they had neglected the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the foreigners. They had said, you are barnacles on our future. You're a drag to our possibility We will ignore you and make sure that any wealth we have, any interest we have, will be solely for ourselves. Bruised reeds and dim wicks. I mean, if we've yet to realize that those who are considered past their best by date, those considered no longer valuable is relative, then 
we really need to get a, a grasp of that. We can't just say, well, that only applies to the wealthy or only the terribly poor. It, it is relative. It, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't and hasn't taken human beings very long to develop our own set of hierarchies. We look at our friendships, and we treat our friendships that way. This friend is more important than this friend because I get more out of this friend than I do that friend. Friendships then become transactional, so we'll invest more here than here. And if they need something, well, they don't give much in return, but we'll put all of our energy here. It's relative. You don't have to be King David, and you don't have to be Abraham, the father of many nations. You can just be ordinary folks from Tri-City. And we can do precisely the same thing. If we don't see a return on our investment, then those who we are investing in, we withdraw from. The prophet tells of people who need to be conv- who are who are convinced of people who are convinced that their future is bleak, that they've passed their best by day, that their usefulness no, is is no more. They need to move beyond the fact that they have decided they've passed their chance. God, is, through the prophet, is saying, "I'm raising up someone for you, a servant, one whose faithfulness will benefit the world." I mean, it could be them. It could be them in captivity. They could have heard the prophet Jeremiah who said to them, build houses, plant vineyards, raise families, and benefit where you live. They, they could have, some could have said, this is our second chance. We, we could, and maybe some did. Maybe once their ex- time, their exile is over, they'll become the people through whom the world would be blessed. Maybe they looked with possibility at their future. What we get from their future after exile are glimpses. No consistency. No real faithfulness. And we realize that we are all considered by someone to be to them a bruised reed, a dim wick, not the best, and not very useful. But here's what God does in Jesus he reveals that God is faithful to bruised reeds and dim wicks. He says through the, to the people, to we today, here is my servant. I put my spirit on my servant. And he is not going to look away from a bruised reed and he's not going to quench the fire of a dim wick. I mean, there's no greater news in all the world for someone who has become emotionally concerned about the fact that they're no longer the best at anything and they're, they're wondering if they're useful for anything. The good news of the kingdom is that God loves us bruised reeds and dim wicks who some consider not very useful, not worth very much. But in the eyes of God, we are loved. And he sent his servant to make sure we were well aware of that. We are in the season of epiphany in the church calendar, which really means the revealing of all that Jesus means to us. All the major events that we look at in Scripture that say, hey, God is telling you who he is in Jesus. We are to pay attention to. And I think that for our time in this season, the cover of your bulletin is a 
illustration to hold on to that the incarnation is God's sign language. It's God's language of saying, I love you. That when God became flesh, the human God, He is telling us, I have chosen you. I'm not pushing you to the edge. You're not bruised reeds. You're not dim wicks. But you're beloved. You're loved. So when we hear afresh the words we said a bit ago, it's, it's worth hearing again. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be crushed until he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his teaching. Matthew gets past his Christmas story quickly. And once the Christmas story is over, the next thing we see is Jesus' baptism. So we're going from two years old Jesus to somewhere around 30 years old. A, a, a lapse of time to be sure, but what we have here is the import God intends to let us know that it's not a matter of uh, rule-keeping or being powerfully religious. Those aren't the best qualities. Being the most useful is not the thing that we must work toward. To hear the message that we are loved and receive it as gift is. It is. Jesus tells John when... John resists baptizing Jesus, and he does so out of great sense of humility. It's not false humility. John knows well what his job is. He knows well that the one coming after him is greater than he is, but he, and so he resists. I am not worthy, he says. But almost as if he were a new Samuel, Jesus insists and impresses no you must do this to fulfill all righteousness. It is not to say that somehow Jesus going down into the Jordan becomes righteous at his baptism, but it is if to say, listen, there are a people who I'm here for who have not been faithful. It has bruised them. It has dimmed them. And I'm here for them. And in order to let them know that there's a God who's been faithful and obedient to himself, to the promise that he made, you will baptize me because I'm identifying with every last one of these bruised reed, reeds and dim wicks who's come out to be baptized. I'm with them. And in order for them to know that I am with them and for them, you must fulfill this because I'm going to be faithful for them. I'm not going to run out of gas and no one's going to defeat me I'm going to let them know they are loved Jesus will be the one who is faithful and what happens Jesus comes up out of the water and the voice is heard the voice that the psalm that was read earlier describes all the ways that the, vo the voice evokes activity it is the voice of the servant of Isaiah 42, and it's the voice that visits Peter on the roof of his house to say, 
this good news is for everybody. Everybody needs to hear God loves them. So when Jesus comes to John to be baptized, he is doing what Abraham couldn't do, what David didn't do, and what Israel didn't do. He is faithful to the one for us. And that he is with us is, is God's indication to say, I love you.